0: 1 Peter 3 First Peter 3 verses 18 through 22 and then if you'd like to follow along as I read uh, article 34 that's on page 86 in the back of the blue hymnal it's quite a long article on holy baptism Article 34, so if it'll be easier for you to follow along, you can do that. I'll read that after we read First Peter chapter 3. God's holy word given to us for our good. Beginning in verse 18 down through verse 22. two. First Peter chapter 3. Give your attention to God's holy word. For Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Article 34, the Belgian Confession. Holy Baptism. Article 34. We believe and confess that Jesus Christ, who is the end of the law, has made an end by the shedding of his blood of all other sheddings of blood which men could or would make as a propitiation or satisfaction for sin. And that he, having abolished circumcision, which was done with blood, has instituted the sacrament of baptism instead thereof, by which we are received into the church of God, and separated from all other people and strange religions, that we may wholly belong to him whose mark and ensign we bear, and which serves as a testimony to us that he will forever be our gracious God and Father. Therefore... He has commanded all those who are his to be baptized with pure water into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, thereby signifying to us that as water washes away the filth of the body when poured upon it and is seen on the body of the baptized when sprinkled upon him, so does the blood of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit internally sprinkle the soul, cleanse it from its sins, and regenerate us from children of wrath unto children of God. Not that this is effected by the external water, but by the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God, who is our Red Sea, through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, that is, the devil, and to enter into the spiritual land of Canaan. The ministers, therefore, on their part, administer the sacrament and that which is visible, but our Lord gives that which is signified by the sacrament, namely, the gifts and invisible grace, washing, cleansing, and purging our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving unto us a true assurance of his fatherly goodness, putting on us the new man and putting off the old man with all his deeds. We believe, therefore, that every man who is earnestly studious of obtaining life eternal ought to be baptized but once with this only baptism, without ever repeating the same, since we cannot be born twice. Neither does this baptism avail us only at the time when the water is poured upon us and received by us, but also through the whole course of our life. Therefore, we detest the error of the Anabaptists, who are not content with the one only baptism they have once received, and moreover condemn the baptism of the infants of believers, who we believe ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant, as the children in Israel formerly were circumcised upon the same promises which are made unto our children. And indeed Christ shed his blood no less for the washing of the children of believers than for adult persons." And therefore, they ought to receive the sign and sacrament of that which Christ has done for them, as the Lord commanded in the law that they should be made partakers of the sacrament of Christ's suffering and death shortly after they were born, by offering for them a lamb, which was a sacrament of Jesus Christ. Moreover, what circumcision was to the Jews, baptism is to our children. And for this reason, St. Paul calls baptism the circumcision of Christ. Oftentimes the Reformed position on something theologically is sort of in the middle, kind of mediating against two errors of extremes. And and certainly that's particularly seen when it comes to the sacraments. We see errors on, on both sides of us. There would be the the more sacramentarian approach, which is seen in the Roman Catholic Church, which uh, you you might say is is more of a, a magical view. the sacrament is effectual what they say ex opere operato the the, the doing of the thing is the actual thing uh, the body and blood becomes the literal body and blood, and so taking it in means that you will have those benefits uh, automatically so we 're mediating against that error and we 're mediating against the error of Saying that the sign or that which God gives to us for our good, the sacraments are, are nothing, and, and we see that more in the, the Radical Reformation and in what our confession calls the Anabaptist position, it was going around continental Europe at the time that was centered much more upon individual experience, um, communication with God. Unmediated by the church, unmediated by the ministers, and there was this rejection of those things, those physical things which God has given to us uh, for our good, like uh, the sacraments. So we're, we're, we're wanting to make sure that, that we uphold the importance of something like a sacrament, like baptism, and saying it has meaning. It has purpose. It's a means of grace. It's something that God uses for our spiritual good, uses for uh, the good of our lives. And yet wanting to not allow that to become this over-inflated meaning, where it almost becomes a, a magical thing, and it's not connected to the gospel. Everything that we do, uh, here in the church, by word and sacrament, it needs to be the exaltation of the work of Christ reminding us of the gospel summoning us to faith you think of last week when uh, or two weeks ago whenever it was we, we dealt with the last article on the sacraments we said that uh, we went to that uh, passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says uh, run so as to win the prize that, that that's the kind of mindset we are to have in the christian life this giving of effort and seeking holiness and sanctification in the Lord, yet knowing that it's God working in us and that God uses means to work in us, to bring about this deeper faith and this deeper love and this deeper devotion. These are the kinds of things that uh, we need to remember and understand that God uses means. And we need to always tie ourselves, tether ourselves to the gospel and God's work in and through the gospel by the power of the Spirit and uh, in Jesus Christ. So you want to uphold the importance and uh, not allow the importance to allow people to have a misconception about things. This is a struggle for me, it's a silly illustration, but a struggle for me is something that happened recently in uh, the Masters Golf Tournament. You can ask Michelle, this is by far my favorite sporting event of the whole year, and I love it, and it's so great. I could talk for hours about the course and the history of the tournament and how compelling it is, and I'm boring you now, so I'll just stop. But, uh, but I love it. But it's, it, you know it's, it's one of those things where if I start talking about it too much and I let on how much I know about this particular sporting event, people might say, wow, it's almost like... You you know, Pastor almost loves this too much. He knows he knows too much about it. It's a little bit weird, and I'm aware that I can sort of put that on when we're talking about the Masters golf tournament. So I need to be careful to make sure that I say yes, I enjoy this thing, but it's not everything in my life, right? I, I am hopefully mature enough now to know that what happens in a sporting event is ultimately irrelevant and need to make sure to, to, to have and strike that balance, right? That's a silly illustration, but in some ways, it's similar to how we do the sacraments. It's important. We need to uphold its importance, and yet we cannot allow ourselves to delve into this sort of magical view of the sacraments. It needs to be about the gospel and bringing us to faith and God's work in and through the gospel, This was something that is a journey for me. As most of you know, I I grew up in in the Baptist tradition or uh, the Lutheran pietist Scandinavian tradition that was connected more to that anabaptism. And oftentimes when I would see baptisms take place going on, It would be accompanied by one of those uh, sayings that, you know, no one is getting saved today. There's nothing spiritual about what we are witnessing. Nothing is changing about this person. And as I grew up and pondered on that and thought about that more and more, it became more and more problematic to me. Why do we introduce something that God has given to us, something that is talked about so much in Scripture by having all of these caveats attached to it. Nothing is changing about this person. No one is, uh, nothing ultimate is happening today, almost like we're downplaying the importance of it. There is something that happens in baptism, even if it is bringing into agreement the visible and the invisible, showing someone to be a part of the church, who is joining it through profession of faith or has been born into God's covenant people. This is a a wonderful thing. This is a means of grace not only for the one who is getting baptized, but also for the entire church as we partake in it. And we remember once again that we have been baptized into the triune name, that that water has hit us, and we can be assured once again that Christ cleanses us from our sin. God uses all of these things to bring about and to nurture our faith and to sustain our faith. These are the kinds of things that we need to remember and uh, hold on to in baptism. So we remind ourselves of things like God's sovereignty, uh, God's sovereignty and salvation. He is the one who is bringing this about. He is the one who, who does it. Only he can save, only he can redeem, only he can sanctify we remind ourselves about the necessity of faith that makes the sacraments effective, effectual. It is, it is faith. It's not the, the piety of the minister. It's not the, the magic of some ceremony. It is faith that makes the sacraments effectual. And then finally, we remind ourselves of the primary work of the Holy Spirit in and through the sacraments. And so we approach things like baptism with reverence and care, asking God to show us the meaning and plant deep in our hearts a sense of the meaning and yet guard us from error. So first, baptism is a sign and seal of the circumcision of Christ. It's a sign and seal of the work of Christ, the circumcision of Christ. Secondly, baptism summons us to faith. It summons us to faith. All of God's people, that's what it does for us. It summons us to faith. And then finally, baptism has lifelong significance. Baptism has lifelong significance. First, baptism is a sign and seal of Christ's work. It's a sign and seal of Christ's work. In the article here on holy baptism, it says that Jesus is the end of the law. All that the law, the prophets, the Old Testament, particularly the Old Covenant worship, all that it was about was pointing God's people to a once for all sacrifice. Christ suffered once for sins, it says in First Peter chapter 3. That word for once, the Greek word, hopox, And to Greek students, that's a word that jumps out. Because whenever there's a, a word that happens in the New Testament only once, it's called a, a hopox legomena. And in seminary, we would just shorthand it and we would say, oh yeah, that, that's a hopox." So that word jumps out at you for Greek students. Christ suffered once for sins, only once, No more. It was a one-time sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is... He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We've just reminded ourselves of it. We're closing down Holy Week. We're ending it now, setting out on what the church calendar normally calls ordinary time. And we have just camped out Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday, the sufficiency of Christ's work. What he did on the cross on Good Friday, he only needed to do once. He only needed to do once. Baptism reminds us of that because baptism is a one-time sacrament for a one-time sacrifice. It's a one-time sacrament for a one-time sacrifice. I've had the the displeasure of talking to people who have been baptized many times, several times. And they think that every time they, they wander from God... Uh, they need to get rebaptized, or every time they're uncertain about their salvation or where they stand with the Lord, they need to be rebaptized. Just in the last couple of weeks, uh, someone came by the church and wanted to be baptized. I asked them if they had been baptized before. They said yes, and I said if they asked if they'd been baptized multiple times. They said, "Oh yes, many, many times." And I had the opportunity then to take a few moments and to explain why it's a one-time sacrament for a one-time sacrifice. That's one, part, one of the, the, the beauties of, of the sign of baptism. The merit of Christ was such that he only needed to suffer once. He was able to go down into the depths of, of death and suffering and God's wrath and sustain it all, absorb it all, and have victory over it all just by his one-time sacrifice. The merit of Christ was such that he only needed to suffer once, The power of Christ is such that we only need to be baptized once. He's the end of the law. And uh, baptism is a sign of God's working salvation amongst his people. And so it marks you out. It's, It's a marker. It says, these are the people of God. This is who God's people are on earth. God is, of course, a covenant God. The theme verse, perhaps, if you like, of the Old Testament God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. And that reality is carried over into the new. God is a God to his people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we know that God is our God? Because Jesus Christ represents us before the Father with that one-time sacrifice. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Why? Because Christ's work is sufficient. And so God has always had a people on the earth. He has always been a God to some people on the earth. Just briefly, we could take a whole whole sermon or a series of sermons on this, but it's this very simple idea where the Reformed have always circled and camped out to assert the truth and the practice of infant baptism. The people of God has always included the children of believers. I will be a God to you and to your children. In the book of Acts, for the promise is for you and for your children, and for many who are far off, as many as the Lord our God calls. See, it's an expansion upon that Old Testament promise. The people of God has always included the children of believers. I was thinking about this today, even as we are... Uh, sort of hearing about the fallout, all the reporting of this terrible, terrible, terrible attack in Sri Lanka of the churches that are gathered together. See, our default we live in a wonderful country, wonderful tradition. You think about the founding fathers. You know, this country never would have been established by Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims. Never would have been established by atheists. It only could have been the, Judeo- the Judeo-Christian worldview that could have established such a country as this. And we're now struggling with many of our own problems, but certainly we live in a great land. But one of the challenges is that our our default is the thinking of uh, men in history like John Locke. And John Locke, he was famous for saying that all human relationships need to be the product of our own free will. In other words, all the things that we have in our life, the friendships, the family, all the connections that we have, that needs to be the product of one of our own choices. And that was a huge oversight. That's a very immature way of looking at the world. All kinds of things that we are born into. And today, I'm thinking about these young people. I don't mean to sadden us with these thoughts, but certainly as God's people are gathered today for worship, there were children in these churches who had come to worship the triune God. Why? Because they had been born into Christian homes. See, they didn't have a choice about that. They were born into that. It was actually a blessing. They were born into that home where Christ was Lord and homes that said, as for this house, we will serve the true God. We will serve the true Lord. We're born into this kind of reality. There are all kinds of relationships that we do not choose Ourselves, And we're now starting to see how society becomes unraveled when you tell people that every single thing about their life needs to be the product of their own decision, pursuing their own pleasure. Those who are born... Into, and I believe, honestly, that persecution of the church as the early church is thinking about all of these things and how Christians were being persecuted and even martyred for their faith, that this is one of those things that allow them to say, yes, our, our children are a part of the people of God. The, the world looks at us as a worshiping community and we bring our children along and we raise them in the faith. And we raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And our prayer for them is that they would never know a day where Christ Is not Lord of their lives. It doesn't mean that we presume all of our children are regenerate, just like we don't presume that about anyone in the church. We affirm it, we declare it, we believe and we hope all things. And certainly we know and appreciate the blessing of being raised in the church and in God's people. God has always had a people on earth and it's how he marks us out. Baptism is that sign of Christ's salvation, of our being God's people. And it reminds us that we belong to him. Martin Luther uh, lived battling all kinds of spiritual darkness and depression. If you go and you read the writings of Martin Luther, one of the things that sticks out is that his perhaps chief source of comfort throughout his life in the times of this spiritual anguish that he was experiencing as he's going through all these changes in the Reformation, the early Reformation, perhaps his greatest comfort was telling himself that he was baptized. He was baptized. He would, as he would even speak out loud to the kinds of spiritual oppression that he was experiencing, he would say, I have been baptized. I have been baptized, meaning I'm God's. I belong to the Lord. And God used that to sustain him in his faith. It's like a wedding ring, isn't it? Baptism is like a wedding ring. It's there, it reminds you, you've taken a vow. You've taken a vow in sickness and in health, unto death, right? Even when you don't want to, you've taken a vow to be faithful to that person. Baptism reminds us that we belong to him. So it signifies the gospel, it signifies what Christ does. The article does a, uh, the confession does a great job talking Christ is our red sea, right? We pass through the wrath as the water is put to both sides. We pass through with dry feet because God has saved us from the sea of our sin. He is our ark. He, he is like the ark with Noah. And First and Peter chapter 3 brings this out, doesn't he? That's the picture that 1 Peter uses. Christ is like the ark that brings us through the flood of God's wrath and the kind of, of terrible realities that our sin brings us into. See, Christ underwent the punishment of the flood of God's wrath for us. We often think more about blessing when it comes to baptism, but we also should think about curse. That the water, uh, the, the water signifies cleansing, but it also signif- signifies cursing. We come under these waters of judgment, but we pass through on the other side, just like the ark passed through the other side. So it's a sign. It's also a seal. It's a seal. And that word seal, what you do is you think about the word confirm. It's simply the word confirm. It confirms that what God says is true. He knows that we are weak. He knows that our souls need assurance. And so he says, as surely as you see this sacrament, as as surely as you taste the bread and taste the cup, that is how sure you can be that my promises are for you. So it signifies the gospel, it signifies us as God's people, and it seals the promises of God. Baptism calls us to the gospel. It summons us to faith. In today's world, it's often about propping up what we have done and showing it to God. And saying this is who I am. This is what I have done. But baptism is a means of grace. Through which God summons us to faith. And nourishes and sustains our faith. God uses means to grant us faith. And to keep us in the faith. This is why we, we, we looked at 1 Corinthians. When we talked about the article just on the sacraments. Run so as to win the prize. God uses means to evoke faith in us. To nourish and sustain our faith. It's interesting here in 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle says, Baptism now saves you. Baptism now saves you. That seems a little bit, for us, that's a little bit too sacramentarian, isn't it? And then he, almost, and then he says something that almost seems too Anabaptist. He says, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience. The pledge of a good conscience. Now, what does this mean? Ultimately, what this verse is telling us is that baptism saves us insofar as it is a means that God uses to bring us to faith in the gospel. It's a means that God uses to bring us to faith in the gospel. What does Peter mean by this good conscience? The Pledge of a Good Conscience. Well, the idea of of a good conscience is always connected in the New Testament to Christ's work. You think about that once-for-all sacrifice that we see in the book of Hebrews. Having a good conscience in terms of our Christian faith is knowing that Christ washes us, cleanses us from every sin. He doesn't need to repeatedly offer himself. He does not need to go back into the Holy of Holies and represent his work. It was sufficient to cleanse us from every sin, from every stain. And so our consciences are cleansed because we know that the Savior we have, who is reigning at the Father's right hand even now, his session, in other words, his reign, his being seated up there in heaven, is good enough to cleanse us from every sin. And that nourishes and sustains our faith, doesn't it? It allows us to say each and every day, Christ is a sufficient Savior for me. That's what it means to have a a good conscience. But then he says it's, it's a pledge of a good conscience. A pledge of a good conscience. This word means an inquiry or an appeal. This is Peter's way of saying that baptism's true benefit is unfolded in faith as those who look to Christ, as those who are, who are brought into an understanding of the gospel, whether it be those who enter the church through profession or those who are raised in the church as part of God's covenant people. It's those who understand Christ's benefit in the gospel. Think about what our confession says. Every man who is earnestly studious of obtaining life eternal. This is what it means to be Part of the faithful and the followers of, of Jesus, earnestly studious of obtaining life eternal. So ask yourself, brother, sister, are you earnestly studious of obtaining life eternal? Are you running the race? Are you staying faithful to your Savior? Don't let your love for Christ go cold. And that brings us to our last point, and that is that baptism has a lifelong significance. It has a lifelong significance. Each and every day, God uses the truth, and the reality of baptism to lead us on, to lead us on. Our confession says, neither does this baptism avail us only at the time when water is poured upon us and received by us, but also throughout the whole course of our life. Throughout the whole course of our life. That's why one of the reasons why we don't need to be baptized over and over and over again. Martin Luther would look back and he would say, I have been baptized, and that reality is helping me even now as I fight temptation. I'm improving my baptism. I'm remembering my baptism. I'm rejoicing in it. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that the efficacy of baptism is not tied to the moment of its administration. The issue is not when you were baptized. The issue is whether you have been baptized. And that God uses that to summon us to faith and repentance and obedience. The picture of baptism, the removal of the dirt from our flesh, being washed. It's a reminder that Christ cleanses us from two aspects of our sin that we see in the Heidelberg Catechism. He cleanses us from the guilt of our sin... And the power of sin. The guilt of our sin and the power of our sin. And we are to rejoice in this. If you want baptism to have a lifelong significance for you, use it every day as a reminder, as a a pointer that in Christ, He overcomes the guilt of your sin and He overcomes the power of your sin. Romans chapter 6 Christ cleanses us from the guilt of sin. Glorious gospel reminders. Do you not know that you have been united in the work of Christ? Baptism is also a reminder that in Christ, he overcomes the power of our sin. So Paul goes on to say in Romans 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's part something we experience in and through sanctification. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So what Paul says in that long passage that would take several weeks to unpack, what Paul says is that know your baptism, know that in baptism by the power of the gospel Christ cleanses you from every sin and stain and know that in baptism God calls you to live a life where sin does not reign in your mortal body. And so baptism becomes this means whereby, by the power of the Spirit, God brings about that kind of sanctified life for you. There's an old Puritan prayer that ends this way. It says, let me live as one baptized into the threefold name. Let me live that way. These are the kinds of things we need to teach to our covenant children. That God calls you to live as one baptized into the threefold name. Don't rest upon it as some kind of uh, magic ritual. But don't let it be something that has no significance or meaning. Let it be something that God uses in our life to bring about true and saving faith. Remember your baptism. Like Martin Luther, remember that you have been baptized. I was baptized when I was eight or nine we in there. And frankly, I don't really remember much about the day. And I don't remember much about it happening. But I remember that I'm baptized. I remember that I am one who has been baptized into the threefold name, the triune name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So remember your baptism and then improve. Improve your baptism. The uh, one neglected duty of the Christian life, the Westminster Catechism says, is improving your baptism. And this is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in times of temptation, and when we are present at the administration of it to others. When we see it happen, we improve our baptism. How do we do that? By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it. Do you consider the truths and the blessings of baptism? like our own confession says? Do you consider each day that being baptized is a reminder of being washed, cleansed, purging your soul of all filth and unrighteousness? Do you remind yourselves that baptism is about renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving us assurance of God's fatherly goodness, putting on the new man, putting off the old man with all of its deeds? So you recount these things. You remember the ends for which Christ has instituted of it. instituted it. You remember the privileges and the benefits that are conferred and sealed thereby. You are reminded and you are humbled of our own sinful defi- defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism and all its engagements. And this answer goes on and on. And all of these things, these spiritual practices, uh, the idea that it brings to our minds is that you need to live every day with this reminder. It's one of the ways, one of the chief ways that you remind yourselves that you belong to God because you have been baptized, because you are a part of his people. And through it, God is summoning you to a life of faith, not one in which you prop up your own righteousness, but through the gospel. It's only through Jesus that the guilt of sin is washed away. It's only through Jesus that the power of sin is done away with in our lives. So baptism is a sign and seal of the work of Christ. Uh, Baptism has lifelong significance. And baptism is a means of grace uh, by which God calls us, summons us to saving and sanctifying and lifelong faith. That we may ever serve him and that we may live for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the good word that we find here. Uh, not only in First Peter, but also the wonderful doctrine that has been passed down to us by our forefathers. Father, we, we love it, we cherish it, and we ask that you would once again lead us into all truth. Allow us to remember and improve our baptism day by day, uh, to live as those who are baptized into the threefold name. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.